Okay. And I'm joined today in the studio by Oliver Sunderman, who you've just told me means... You want me to explain Yes, it? I do. <laughs> Sünderman. Yeah. So that's German and it literally means the man who commits sins. Okay. Sünderman. So there's a there's a background for a name. And you're visiting <laughs> us uh, at Erdebrill from National University in Singapore. Yes. And this okay. is not your first time. No, it's actually the third time I'm here. Okay. I seem to keep coming back. Yes. And Thanks. we keep sending people over to you. Yes. Including me. Because I've been true. over to see you guys a couple of times. Yep, yep. Okay. And uh, you do a few different things. You're mm. the clinic manager over at uh, NUS, National University of Singapore. Yes, on the clinical program. Mm -hmm. So we have a two-year master's program mm -hmm. um, where students train to be clinical psychologists. And yep. we have a clinic that's very similar to the clinic you have here in your mm psychology department and yep that's where i'm based okay mm. and we're going to talk today about uh, or mostly about bdd or body dysmorphic disorder and before we, what i thought we would do today is we maybe just get a little bit of your background mm -hmm. uh, and then we can talk about bdd because there's actually something that's not well known it's a it's an uh, an illness that's underdiagnosed that's amongst right. other yeah. things yeah. and then i thought towards the end we might just talk a little bit about some of your research and some of the research you're planning to do mm -hmm. or we're planning to do because you and I have been discussing some collaboration as well. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Sounds all good. Where so would you like to start? At the very start. Where do you come from? How did this <laughs> all, how did you end up as the <laughs> clinic manager at uh, NUS? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, well, I'm from Germany originally, I'm from Frankfurt, and um, I studied in uh, Kiel. Kiel University mm -hmm. is not so far away from the Scandinavian countries mm -hmm. in the north of Germany. And I ventured out to do my PhD afterwards in uh, the UK, in London, mm -hmm. at the Institute of uh, Psychiatry at the Maudsley. Okay, a, a very famous institution. Yes, it's a very old, uh, one, I think one of the oldest um, psychiatric hospitals, mm. the Maudsley in London. And they have a very good uh, clinical course there as well. But I, I did my PhD first, so it was all about academia. And I um, studied post-traumatic stress mm -hmm. at the time. And I went on to then do my three-year doctorate in clinical psychology afterwards at the same university, okay. uh, IOP at King's, which okay. is the actually they're attached to King's okay. College. Mm. And very briefly, your PhD topic. The so the PhD was about um, memory processes in post-traumatic stress, okay. and we did. Um, uh, a bunch of studies. We looked at um, clinical samples. We um, we did some longitudinal studies where we um, recruited people after accidents and assaults in the hospital, and um, we followed them up over six months. And we did um, various experiments. So my my PhD mostly looked at um, yeah memory processes, and we did some experiments with them in the lab. Mm. And we also did some uh, so-called analog studies where we um, basically traumatized um, uh, student populations okay. in, in our laboratory by, by showing them very gruesome images and, and films and pictures. And we looked at how, how much we um, yeah, can uh, sort of yeah, traumatize them, but also then study the memory processes. Mm. By, by looking at priming and conditioning and so on. How is the ethics process to uh, be doing research <laughs> where you're traumatizing students? I mean, we do it just by setting exams, but it's a bit harder to do it as part yeah, of a study. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, how, how do you get past the ethics? Um, well, yeah, these analog studies have been done quite a bit. So, yeah, um, yeah you, you show horrible movies and mm. most people watch them on Netflix anyway. 
yeah. not not at the time, but yeah. um, what you find is that some people uh, develop some intrusive memories, but actually the actual distress is very minimal, very okay. mild. Um, so none of the people who came to our lab uh, actually had any any lasting problems from that. Okay. But yeah, so th that that was my PhD. Yep. There was some post traumatic stress. And then what happened next? So then I um, went on to um, do the clinical training at the IOP as well. That's mm -hmm. a three-year uh, doctor course um, where you have clinical placements and you do some research and service projects. And that was another three years. Mm -hmm. And so I then, um, in my final year, we had specialist placements. Um, and I uh, developed an interest in, in body dysmorphic disorder. So this is where it starts. So that's where it started uh, uh, back in 2012. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so at the Maudsley, they had, um, or they still have the Center for Anxiety Disorders and Trauma, mm -hmm. which is a specialist clinic, outpatient clinic uh, for people with anxiety problems. And um, yeah, they had a lot of experts uh, specializing in all sorts of, um, anxiety problems mm -hmm. and so BDD was one of them BDD and OCD was actually um, the, the two main um, uh, groups I worked with on this particular placement mm. and yeah so um, I went on then afterwards to work in in, in various national um, clinics both inpatient and outpatient for a few more years and in, in the UK in the UK mm -hmm. and and so your role at the moment is you're managing the clinic Yes, so I have a bit of a, a mixed role. So officially, yeah, on uh, on 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 paper, that's that's my that's my role mm -hmm. to to run the clinic, uh, and and I do, and that's that's a job in itself. Mm. But I also teach on the clinical program, mm -hmm. uh, and I do a bit of undergrad teaching as well. Mm. And um, I'm very fortunate that um, I also have a bit of time to do research, mm -hmm. and I do a lot of clinical supervision as well in the clinic. Mm. And we do. Um, yeah, we do develop the clinic more uh, towards um, specialism as well in OCD and BDD. So, okay, um, we are, um, yeah, we're promoting the clinic in Singapore. We're we're doing more public work, um, f both for OCD and and, and BDD, and uh, we're getting a bit more known to to help people with these kinds Indeed. of problems. Okay, and um, there's not a lot um, of Opportun not opportunities, but not a lot of services in Singapore to help people with these sort of specific types of problems, especially BDD. So there's okay. some very good um, OCD work going on in, in Singapore, but not so much for BDD. Okay. And so that brings us to this idea about BDD, mm. body dysmorphic disorder. Yes. Um, not something that's so well known. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us just a little bit about BDD for those who've probably never even heard of the term before? What, sure. what is BDD? Yeah, so body dysmorphic disorder is, um, uh, yeah, it's essentially it's a problem with preoccupation of um, a perceived flaw or several flaws in one's appearance that are not uh, or only slightly noticeable to other people. Okay. So mostly the concerns are focused on visible parts of the body. So very typically um, people being unhappy about um, their nose, their ears, the shape of their face or... Um, their hair um, but it could affect really any part of the body um, mm. some 
um, men or women don't like their genitals and they can start uh, really obsessing over, over, mm. over those uh, body parts uh, or like don't like their legs or mm. hips. But visible parts are more common. Um, and um, and I just, just to... to st- Stop there quickly. There's two words that have come up which we probably need to talk about a little bit more detail mm-hmm. before we go further. Mm-hmm. The first one you said was preoccupied. Yes. Because straight away I can imagine someone thinking, yeah, but people don't like parts of their body. Yes. But that's not what you're talking about. So this word preoccupied means something very specific. Well, it's it's those people who... Um, it's, yeah, so preoccupation really um, means that you can't or the person can't stop uh, obsessing and thinking about mm. their perceived flaw. And the important bit to add here, of course, is that those um, that this preoccupation needs to cause some clinical uh, significant mm. distress or, or uh, functional impairment. And it usually um, yeah, affects relationships, friends, families, uh, functioning at work. So, of course, there has to be some clinical problem. Mm. And and most people, um, I guess that's probably fair to say, mm. are um, to some extent at some point in their life maybe not so happy about certain mm. parts of their bodies. I guess that's that's very normal. But it's when those concerns start taking over the person's life. Okay. Interfering. Interfering, causing distress mm. uh, when there is a problem. Mm. And people who have these severe preoccupations and who may meet diagnostic criteria for BDD, they respond to those um, concerns, appearance concerns, with a set of um, very understandable behaviors from the problem's point of view. So Mm. if you really believe there's something wrong with your body uh, or with your nose or with your eyes and Mm. so on, then it makes a lot of sense that you want to use makeup excessively or not leave the house. So it's lots of avoidance, very typical. Um, but many people with this type of problem, they're also, um, of course, by nature of um, this problem, they see this as a physical problem. Mm. So they may not go and see a psychologist. So a lot of clients, they um, end up getting cosmetic treatments or cosmetic mm. surgery, um, spending vast amounts of money on, on procedures they don't need. And so obviously for the person who's experiencing this, they're not experiencing that they're preoccupied with something. They're mm. experiencing that they actually have a major problem with some part of their appearance. Yes. And you used the yeah. word obsessing and obsessions before, and that's that's mm. a very specific term as well here. Mm. And I understand that uh, for those who are listening. An obsession is, is a repetitive, intrusive thought. Mm-hmm. So it sounds to me like you're talking about somebody who uh, is thinking about a problem mm. uh, in a way that they feel like they can't control. Mm-hmm. and too much and too intensely and then doing a bunch of things about it yes so yeah. we have an obsessed and a preoccupied person mm. uh, focused on a, on a physical floor mm-hmm. 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 that's right yeah so the yeah the person has this very vivid experience of of having a flaw in their body that is not so noticeable to others sometimes mm. slightly noticeable um so if you um if you uh take out a if i sometimes say to clients you know if i were to take out a magnifying glass and were to take up a really close-up look i could maybe just about sort of see what you're getting at mm-hmm. um highlighting sometimes there are small differences um in maybe skin texture and so on but it's 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 usually the the concerns are excessive mm. and um relative to the to the I don't want to say problem, but relative to whatever it is they're responding yeah, to. Yeah. So, so the person with BDD would often have their problem minimised because mm. they, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to tell that they are if if they don't tell you that they have a concern mm. 
a very strong concern about a part of their body. But, and but this could also apply to someone who was responding to something very noticeable, so perhaps like a receding hairline. Yes. So it could be for mm. someone who has, they're reacting to something in their appearance that maybe others really struggle to even notice, mm-hmm. or it could be something that others would notice but yeah. don't think it's a big problem. Yes, mm. that's right. So, so yeah, I mean, it is... It is a fear of judgment, essentially, mm. being a fear of being judged for the way you look. Mm. And of course, you know, if a receding hairline, so my hair is a bit balding. Um, it, so it's mine. <laughs> yes. And, and so uh, I don't like it, but mm. I, I don't preoccupy over this yeah. um, all day long. Mm. And it's... That's the, that's the important distinction between people who have a clinical problem, BDD, mm. the distress it causes, and those who have maybe some concerns, but it doesn't really interfere mm. um, with their life. And yeah, that's a very, I think that's an important distinction. So you mentioned a few. So there's a few uh, classic behaviours. Mm. You mentioned um, excessive makeup use, uh, yeah, surgeries, yeah. and yeah. my understanding is mm. there's a lot of mirror checking. Yeah, there's a bunch of sort of um, more typical behaviours. Mm. So you're right. Mirror checks are very common. Either excessive mirror checking, sort of trying to examine the perceived flaw at close-up for sometimes hours on end. So you literally mean standing in front of a mirror yeah. and very, very closely yeah. examining for... Because I'm what I'm thinking here is that um, mirror checking or mirror use is something that most people do. Some people do it a lot, but then mm. we're talking about... So if we're, for anybody who's listening, how would they differentiate mm. if we use mirror checking as an example? Yeah. When do we start to think that mirror checking is, is uh, compulsive or... Uh, yeah, so th- this is a yeah important question, I guess. So um, the question is really about the function of the behavior. So what mm. is the purpose of this behavior? And so if if you use the mirror sort of um, 10 seconds in the morning just mm. to see where you've got some um, toothpaste or mm. leftovers from your breakfast sort of hanging over your face, um, just to see whether you're presentable, that's not a um, compulsive no. uh, mirror check. Mm. It's it's time spent and, again, the distress caused by it. Mm. So if the function of the mirror check is not just to look whether you brief check whether you're presentable, but to either fix your appearance or to practice um, your best looks, um, so to avert a social threat. Sure. So if it's, if it's basically threat-driven, if the function is to uh-huh. avert a threat, then that's more likely to be a, a problematic um, coping behavior or safety behavior. Uh. So it's the way the mirrors are used. So typically, um, someone with um, BDD who worries about, um, say, a flaw in their uh, in, in their face, mm. um, they would take a very close-up look. Um, they sort of get, sometimes we say, lost in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they really zoom in on their perceived flaws versus stepping out of the mirror and taking a more holistic view, which okay. is usually more helpful, more functional. So they're seeing just the flaw, essentially. Yes, an mm. examiner, and they might use tweezers or, or skin picking as another common behavior used in front of the mirror mm. to to try and um, yeah operate or, or fix um, the part of the body they don't like. Mm. And it's... And that's an important part, how you use the mirror. 
um, because I had a I remember a client uh, I worked with in the UK who mm. um, he had a very very severe preoccupation um, with facial skin Mm-hmm. And he was very unwell, and he uh, came to our residential unit um, for three months of intensive work. And he had used um, sandpaper on his face and uh, okay. wanted to burn it off. And he was very, very unwell, and he was hiding at home with um, the curtains closed. Be- mm. Bright lights are often very difficult for people with BDD because um, they fear that their perceived flaws more noticeable to others. So mm-hmm. bright lights are very difficult. Mm-hmm. And um, he was either fully avoiding mirrors because it was too distressing to see, um, for him to see his his floor, um, or getting lost and stuck in the mirror. And so he told me, he said, um, Oliver, I wish I had your skin. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, you've got Hollywood skin. Uh, I never heard this expression before. Mm. I don't know, like Brad Pitt or um, one of those stars. And, mm. I, and, and he said, yeah, I really like to have your skin. And I said, um, so okay, I I didn't know I have good skin. Uh, I don't use any products or spend any time mm. on it. And um, we then discovered together that the way he used the mirror was very different to how I used it. Mm. So we went to the bathroom together, and he showed me how he would use the mirror, which was like literally two centimeters close up, uh, using magnifying mirrors as well. And of mm. course, you see all sorts of. Um, blemishes mm. and um and beads and black hats and 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 so on um and i did the same and i, I never knew i had so much dirt in my skin okay. and uh, pus and so on i started squeezing around a bit and i could really sort of see um why this is problematic because it does uh, distort the way mm. um you you see yourself if you if that's how you use the mirror that really um you know really distorts your perception because it's a very sort of zoomed in snap uh, shot of of one single aspect of your yeah. appearance which is not how other people see you mm-hmm. um and so that was that was an interesting experience mm. both for me but also for him is there any mm. any time element to this so we've talked about someone using a mirror in a in a very different way mm. uh is there any ideas around just how much time in front of a mirror before you might start to think that somebody is is really struggling? Yeah, knowing that some people spend quite a lot of time in front of the mirror yeah. anyway. So yeah, just to be um, absolutely clear, mm. um, that if you're not experiencing distress um, or it's not impairing your you're not um, being late for class because of makeup routines or mirror checks mm. uh, and so on or grooming routines. Um, then you don't have a problem. Okay. So, but the diagnostic criteria suggests that if those behaviours we've just gone over, and then mm. there's, by the way, there's there's, there's some more mm. typical BDD behaviours, but taken together, if, if that takes up more than an hour okay. uh, in the day, the preoccupation and the responding to the preoccupation with those behaviours, then um, that's an indication of of having BDD. So, if you were having some sort of distressing experience with mirror mm. checking, but it was less than an hour. It might it might be something worth concern and maybe attention, yes. but it wouldn't necessarily mean you're going to be diagnosed with, with BDD. Yeah, that's correct. Mm. Although, um, like with all mental health problems, really, mm. uh, BDD falls on a spectrum as well. Yeah. Um, and there, there's some academic discussion around um, um, how, how much that is the case, but um, that's usually a helpful view to take. So mm. that means not everyone uh, engaged in those behaviours really has... Um, 
a real diagnos diagnosable problem, mm. but uh, there may be a problem. And even if they don't meet the formal criteria, they may be in need of treatment. Mm. If what they do, even if it's half an hour a day, is causing significant mm. sort of problems. Mm. Mm. You mentioned there are some other very typical behaviours. Were there other things that... Yeah. So... It's very common as well, um, not just to seek uh, surgery, um, but also to fantasize about okay. um, looking different. Um, that's very common. Mm -hmm. It's called mental surgery. You sometimes okay. use that expression. Okay. Uh, so you operate yourself uh, in your imagination, and um, you could spend a lot of time doing that, and mm. that's unhelpful because it, it feeds your preoccupation and... Um, yeah, you're not really solving a problem. Mm. Or you're, you're solving the wrong problem, which is mm. your, your focus on appearance when the problem is more to do with um, preoccupation mm. rather than an actual physical problem. So so that's another very common behavior. Um, um, what else? Um, so comparing, appearance comparisons mm. are very common as well. So to to compare yourself with peers and other people who mostly the person would perceive as more attractive mm. and... So this is an unfavorable comparison that often, you know, brings on more uh, depression or low mood and, and shame and sadness. And, mm. But it's very typical as well. Or rumination, uh, why don't I look better or why am I stuck in this body? And, and so by rumination you mean, because I think that's a word that maybe some people won't recognize. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, rumination basically are repetitive um, uh, thought patterns or thinking styles sort of mulling over uh, the same topic, um, mm. usually uh, referring to the past. So rumination refers to past topics. Yeah. It's more common in depression and worry. It's more future-orientated. It's more present in sort of generalized anxiety where you worry about bad things happening yeah. in the future. But rumination in, in BDD is often about um, why was I born with this body? Why can't I look different? Or, okay. or if the person went for surgery, why did I do that? Um, I shouldn't have done that. Um, so a lot of um, why didn't I or I should have um, and getting stuck in those repetitive um, thought patterns. Mm. You mentioned briefly before about, so we've got a, a bunch of experiences and mm. behaviors that that exist in normal yep. life yes but they're yep. they're an intensity or they're causing distress mm. um and you mentioned briefly before about the kind of impact it has yes so just tell us a little bit more about that so you mean the impact on the person's life yeah okay yeah. um you, you gave us a, a quite a severe example before, I guess, yeah. where you talked about a person who mm. was locked in the house and lights off. And mm. mm -hmm. What other ways does it interfere? Well, it interferes with relationships, mm -hmm. um, especially if um, the person suffers in silence and doesn't share with they, their boyfriend or girlfriend or, or friends as well um, that they have um, a problem with preoccupation. Mm. Um, and so that's quite a lonely place to be in and it, it may get in the way of you feeling connected with mm -hmm. your friends or partners or, or family because it's an important part of your life you don't share and so that might yeah. make you feel more alienated or disconnected but you might still be very able to f to function other ways and, and people can't really tell um, mm. that, that you have a problem mm. and I think that's the case for for the vast majority of, of sufferers um, who 
because they don't they don't share okay. the problem they have and it it gets in the way of yeah relationships i guess uh, but also i think i alluded to earlier if a lot of time is spent on those it, mm. you might be late or it might interfere with your ability to to focus on your your studies or the work you're supposed to do mm. and it comes with a lot of uh, comorbid problems mm. um so depression being being the main one um yeah it's a very it's a very um we spoke about this earlier mm. john on on the way here it's a very underrecognized problem mm. but also underreported mm. so people don't really report it um unless they're asked specifically about it um, and what are they reported? Because I think it's just actually a physical problem. There's nothing to report, so to speak. Right, right. That also falls on a spectrum. So some people have, um, you know, um, quite good insight that actually um, there is, um, there's maybe a psychological problem. Mm. And uh, actually, a lot of a lot of people um, with BDD, they had some very um, bad experience when they were younger, teenagers. Mm. Um, especially during adolescence, they may have been teased or bullied about an aspect of their appearance. Mm. And that memory can really s sort of stay with a person. And mm. we sometimes use the expression um, being haunted um, okay, yeah. by those uh, memories or ghosts from the past, okay. we sometimes say. And, and yeah, it's basically a, it's, it's a traumatic memory that can stay with a person and, and really shape how you see yourself many, many years later mm. based on what happened when you were younger. Mm. And so it's underreported, mm. but then it's also underrecognized because it's because, uh, first of all, many um, health professionals, they don't they don't know about BDD. Mm -hmm. They might therefore not ask the right questions. They might not ask about it or also very typical and common. They minimize the problem or they might might they might tell the, the person you know, don't be so narcissistic, don't be so vain, um, and, yeah, which is basically not helpful. And or, or I would guess that they just misrecognize it as being normal insecurities mm. and dissatisfaction with one's appearance, which is, is mm. very common. So they just, they missed the severity of it, I guess. They missed the severity of it, yeah. Mm. But I, I did some, um, a few years ago, in, when I was still in the UK, I did some training for GPs. And many mm. GPs actually didn't know what BDD meant. Mm. And when I give talks or presentations, um, sometimes to, to non-psychologists, I typically ask at the beginning, so who has heard about BDD before, hands up. And it's usually less than 10%. Okay. Um, so commonly, it's it's not so well known. So there's, mm. there's, there's quite a need to... Um, destigmatize and raise awareness mm. for this specific problem and yeah there's a lot of work to be done and mm. especially now with the young people using social media so mm. much uh, there's a lot of appearance crafting and image editing going on and um, there's some good reason to believe that uh, those social media behavior is actually a risk factor as well okay so they um, that could potentially make people more vulnerable to it absolutely mm. uh, we have we have some preliminary uh, data from work we did in singapore as well where we looked at um, social media behavior and we uh, very simply looked at whether the amount of time um, you spend on your on your phone screen time basically and especially social media and especially when the content you're looking up is more fashion-based or body-focused, mm. then um, you have a higher chance of um, developing a problem. Concerns in the uh, Concerns, yep.
So we talked a bit about um, people not reporting BDD, but my understanding is also that people um, or professionals sometimes mm-hmm. misdiagnose it, meaning that they think it's something else. Yes. So Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So it's very common to um, misdiagnose BDD as social phobia or social anxiety. And they're very similar in the sense that... Uh, and social are, phobia being... Yeah. So social phobia is a fear of uh, judgment for uh, performing socially. Mm. So a fear that you m- might be boring or that you don't have anything interesting to say mm. or struggling to speak mm. um, in groups or maybe uh, in front of groups. So being severely socially anxious, yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, and so social phobia being... Um, yeah, a fear of being judged mm-hmm. um, by others for performing socially mm-hmm. in some way, and that's that's very commonly known and understood by, mm-hmm. by and that's good by by many psychologists and health professionals. Um, but it's often um, in BDD, it's often um, yeah misdiagnosed. So it's just a fear of judgment is recognised. But the difference being that the person with BDD also has a fear of judgment, but it's about being judged for your appearance, mm, not for what you say. Yeah, okay. So there's a difference there. there yeah, yeah. Some so, similarities, but some difference. Yeah. And then we've also got, you mentioned, obsessive-compulsive disorder before. Right. So they actually, in the diagnostic books, mm. those big books, um, some health professionals or psychiatrists yeah. use to um, go through symptom checklists and mm. come up with... Um, diagnostic labels they have actually grouped bdd and ocd together in a chapter that's called obsessive compulsive and related disorders Mm -hmm. and bdd is in that chapter amongst other things like hoarding and skin picking Mm. but um yeah the the main reason is um i think because both in ocd and bdd you see repetitive behaviors okay that um can be um very yeah compulsive so but the difference is that in, in BDD, the behaviors, um, the function of those behaviors mm. is to improve um, a perceived flaw, improve appearance. Mm. Whereas in OCD, the um, repetitive behaviors you might see, like checking your door um, excessively or, or hand washing, um, so very commonly known mm. concern, fear of germs, um, or um, you know needing things to be symmetrical mm. or just right. The difference is that the function of those behaviors is is often to avoid harm of some sort. So you want you know preventing harm from occurring either to mm. yourself or loved ones, um, or it's just a just right feeling. So yeah, it has okay. to be repeated until it feels just right, or to avoid feelings of disgust. Okay, but it's so not appearance related. Right. So you have the repetitive behaviors, but in BDD, it's very specifically about improving appearance yes, that's or high right. appearance. Yeah. And I'm also <clears> aware that there's some misdiagnosis with eating disorders yeah so yeah that's um, a very uh, good question Um, so both eating disorders um, and body dysmorphic disorders are um, problems with body image Mm. uh, or disorders of of, of body image and in um, anorexia nervosa one of the uh, most common eating disorders Mm. um, the main concern is a fear of weight gain Mm. And the distorted body image is that the person with anorexia, they perceive themselves as possibly having more weight than they really have. So they're Mm. underweight. Um, But in BDD, it's not about weight. It's about a part of your body you you dislike very much, but not weight. So that's a a distinguishing um, criteria. Mm. So if the concern is about weight gain, Mm. 
this is more likely to be uh, an eating disorder problem. Mm. And if the concern is more about not liking your skin or your hair or mm. the shape of your face, <clears throat> it's more likely to be BDD. And how does this relate to... I'm, I'm aware that some people that become uh, obsessed around their body appearance, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about big guys in gyms yes. right here. Yes, yes. a very special example of this. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's very... Um, you had a term for this earlier. Yes, uh, it, it's yeah. called muscle dysmorphia, yeah. or the media sometimes refers to this as bigorexia, mm. as opposed to anorexia, and it mm. refers to... Um, a preoccupation with muscle mass mm. uh, and body fat, mm. and it's a subtype of BDD, and it occurs more frequently uh, more frequently uh, in men. Mm. So I don't think I mentioned that earlier, but BDD is uh, is a little bit more common in women, mm -hmm. um, but it is especially underdiagnosed in men. Mm. Um, and we don't know exactly the reasons. It could be to do with shame and stigma, but it's often overlooked. In actual fact, there's, um, there was a study done in Sweden uh, 10 years ago looking at um, the so-called prevalence rate uh, of BDD. And this study only looked at uh, women. Mm -hmm. And they didn't include the men in this study. And I, I thought this was very uh, reflective of, of the problem that's often overlooked mm -hmm. in men. And so men can have BDD as women about any part of their bodies, mm -hmm. but obsessing over not being big enough is very very common mm. and um so a young man or, or or female as well so it's not specific just to males mm. uh, muscle dysmorphia mm. but typically the person they would uh, spend excessive amounts in the gym they would uh, possibly um engage in steroid use mm. um, or protein shakes ex excessive use of those mm. as well and um, possibly avoidance of, of social activities, again, mm. for fear of judgment. And this can be yeah, very, very problematic if those behaviors take over the person's life. And obviously there's people in the gym that are getting very big mm. and they don't all have body dysmorphic Absolutely. disorder. It sounds yes. to me like, again, the difference here is around distress. So I can imagine somebody uh, who is spending a lot of time building their body right up uh, mm. is enjoying doing that, finding it rewarding. Yes. Uh, but we're talking about something else. We're talking about a subset of people yeah. who are in distress. Yeah. Again, we're not saying that um, anyone who goes to the gym uh, is having a problem. Mm. I think um, the way to look at this is, again, to see whether it's causing you distress. Um, and you could you know, maybe ask yourself if it was a problem if you didn't go to the gym. Mm. Could you miss a gym routine? And if that's really difficult, then maybe that's an indication that there is a problem with, um, yeah, obsessing maybe a little bit too much mm. um, over um, gym usage and maybe um, your appearance. Mm. Now, you've mentioned that there was not much research on males with BDD, yep. and you also mentioned yep. earlier about uh, some research on the potential influence of social media. So maybe it would be good to talk a little mm. bit about research in this area, what's what's happened, what's not happened, and maybe what uh, you've got some ideas about what we do in the future. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yes. How so much time have we got? As much as we want. <laughs> um, yeah, so where to start? Um would you like me to share a little bit of what we are doing or what 
what we think needs to happen? Yeah, maybe we can start with the social media. I mean, obviously okay. everybody's interested in influence okay. on social media, so let's yep. start there maybe. Okay. So, so there is some, some really good evidence now that um, the time spent on social media, especially when the focus is on um, fashion blocks and sort of strong image-focused or body-focused um, content, is related to body dissatisfaction. Mm -hmm. So the more time you spend on these Instagram um, um, posts um, and possibly comparing yourself uh, uh, to those people or influencers, the more time you spend, um, the higher the chance that you're not liking your body. Again, this mm. is just a correlation yep. and it may not be a problem and it's not clear whether the social media usage actually causes the body dissatisfaction or whether people who are not so happy about a part of their body are maybe drawn more towards mm. this sort of content. Mm. It could be either. It could be either, yes. Um, we are doing um, a very cool study in Singapore at the moment where it's a lab-based study where we invite um, participants, uh, mostly students, uh, to the lab. And we um, uh, let them take selfies. Mm -hmm. And we um, we let them edit the selfie. And we have one group that edits the selfie, another group doesn't edit the selfie. And we're comparing whether those beauty filters have an effect on your body satisfaction, um, especially when you have to have to upload those or um, when you share your own images, mm. um, whether that leads to more compar uh, comparing yourself to others, uh, whether it raises your um, aesthetic standard to uh, yeah to unreal yeah in an unrealistic way, mm. um, and there is some early indication that that seems to be the case. Um, I can't talk about the results just yet, but um, ask me in, in a couple ask me in a couple of months. Yeah, okay. but we're looking at that, and we we want to see whether there's some causal uh, some causal relationships mm. in terms of whether the, the photo editing and you comparing yourself with uh, seemingly others who are supposed to be more attractive mm. is a problem. So it may be the case that some of the social comparison that occurs with the use of social media yeah. can impact body mm. image dissatisfaction yes. and then body image dissatisfaction is a risk factor for BDD. Yeah, possible. Mm. So there's this term um, called... Um, Snapchat is dysmorphia that was um, I think was only coined very recently I think by some doctors in the US uh, referring specifically um, to this uh, quite big group of people actually who are using these beauty filters and image crafting uh, apps mm. to improve their online uh, presence and images um, leading to more people wanting to look like their edited selfies and seeking surgery to look mm. more like their, their, their edited pictures. Um, and so there's an increase in numbers of people going to cosmetic clinics and, mm. and seeking plastic surgery. So in the past, um, maybe, uh, John, you and I, we wanted to look like Brad Pitt or Leonardo DiCaprio um, um, or, I don't know, uh, other stars. But mm. now the young people, um, they don't want to look like so much the Hollywood celebrities. They want to look like their edited um, selfies. Okay. Um, so that's a new trend, uh, okay, but quite 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 a worrying trend. And, and we're doing some some research in schools in Singapore as well, where um, where we're doing some positive body image um, programs, mm. and, uh, which we're currently evaluating to mm. to train young people to um, use social media in a sensible way, um, uh, some media literacy, mm. trying to improve and 
um, not jumping on any sort of uh, diet fat wagon and um, being critical about content you see. And we want to see whether that actually helps people to um, not be so self-conscious um, on social media. Mm. Mm. And then you mentioned earlier that there's really a paucity of research in, mm. for example, just prevalence anywhere, particularly males. Yeah. So... Um, in Sweden, as we discussed earlier, we, we don't really know what the prevalence rate is for, for males. Mm. We know for females, it's around 2 to 3%, which is very similar to other Western countries. Mm. Just quite a big number if you if you think about it. Mm. Um, so Sweden has how many how many people? 7, 8 million? No, probably more. 10 million, I think. 10 million. Mm. I apologize. You've got to, two non-Swedes here trying to estimate the population. <laughs> it's not such a good practice. I apologize. <laughs> but yeah, so 10 million people. I mean, 3% of that. Mm. That's that's a lot. How mm. much is that? 300,000 people? Something like people? that, yes. Yeah. So that's... And this is the severe end of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, suggesting there's a lot of people um, in the subclinical range and, mm. and so on. So it is a big problem. So for males, we I think we need to also learn a bit more. Mm. Um, what their concerns are and how frequent they are. And I think we need to learn more about um, help-seeking behavior mm. and access to treatment. So how can we improve uh, access uh, or reduce barriers to treatment mm. and make uh, access make it more ac accessible treatment. Mm. Um, and we need to destigmatize. Um, you mentioned earlier mm, that, that if you ask a, a room full of uh, health professionals uh, who knows what BDD is, that actually it's quite common for not that many in the people in the room to put their hand up. And so I'm surmising from that that um, perhaps the treatment services available for BDD are not, not that well developed in some parts of the world. Obviously, you have some experience in treating BDD. Yeah, but yeah. So the UK... Um, they're doing an amazing job, I think, mm. in, in, in developing those services. And there's some really good specialist services um, in, yeah, in the UK. Mm. Um, I haven't really worked in Germany, so I'm not so familiar with mm. <laughs> my home country. In Singapore, I can say that there is no, no specialist service. Mm. Um, and um, that is a problem mm. because um, people with BDD, they have really no, nowhere good to go. Yeah. Um, so there's a there's a there's a really big need to both educate the public uh, about this problem mm. and to um, reduce barriers to treatment and and build services as well. Yeah. So that's something we're doing in Singapore um, in our training clinic as well. So we have a, a similar um, clinic in our program like you have here in Oberbro, mm. and we've just actually. Um, can show you later on the computer we've done mm. some uh, really good brochures um that illustrate um the problem of bdd and trying to raise awareness but mm. also very specifically saying if you um suffer from those um problems with preoccupation mm. you may have bdd and we treat that mm. and maybe come in for an assessment mm. um and in sweden um i don't really know maybe you tell me i don't know what the situation know, is in sweden i know that there's um there's a, a research program out of karolinska that are looking mm. at internet delivered uh, therapy for, for bdd yep. but i'm actually not that aware of much else going on and i just realized now that we've we've missed probably a very important point here is that uh severe bdd is associated with pretty high rates of suicide yeah yeah 
Yeah, so exactly. So suicidality is very high. It's it's a real um uh yeah, it's a real problem. It's a very risky uh, problem to have. Mm. Um yeah, so I think um attempted suicide is I think um 40, 45 times higher in this population than in the normal general population. Wow. Um, and yeah, so suicidality is a big problem. There's mm. other risks as well, like uh, I think I mentioned debt earlier. So people spending vast uh -huh. amounts of yes. money on on treatment, but also products. So mm. uh, you will not believe um, how many um, uh, makeup products and grooming products we have um, confiscated <laughs> in the services we worked um, because if they're used excessively and if these are so-called safety behaviors of mm. the person, um, part of the treatment is to help the person, of course, come, come away from those mm. so they can experience um, that they're liked and safe without those. Because if they continue using them, then they may um, or likely attribute the fact that nothing bad happens to yeah. those products. And so we've, we've confiscated quite a lot of those. And um, I'm guessing they can literally spend all their money on these products and more than that go into debt and, mm. and credit cards so we, we've seen quite a few clients both in in the uk but now that i'm in singapore and mm. more in singapore as well um people yeah going into major debt mm. and um yeah it's expensive so we've talked about there being maybe not enough known about if we use a swedish context the prevalence rate of vdd mm. um how we go about screening for it or finding it and i know that you've done a little bit of work on how you go about treating it so maybe we could just finish up with mm -hmm. you telling us a bit about you've touched on there about removing some safety behaviors but if a person was to go and be treated for bdd mm. what sorts of things could they expect would yep. be part of that treatment okay so first of all um i should say that um yeah so if the person comes to treatment they may not come uh, out of their own accord or their mm. own motivation. They may, may be uh, coming to see you because a loved one, um, a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, is kind of dragging them to treatment and, and saying you, you should have this because they kind of looked up the symptoms on the internet mm. and they, they think uh, their partner has BDD and they, they bring them to you because they may not want to see you in the first instance. Mm because they think they have a physical problem. So the first part of treatment really is to um, engage the person uh, in a psychological way of, of, of making sense of their problem. Mm. Um, and uh, you, you may need to spend more time than you typically would on, on other problems where there is um, a better sort of insight what, what is going on. So typically a person who has panic uh, disorder or social anxiety they know very well that their fear is excessive mm. um, they just have you know some real difficulty overcoming um, their problem okay but they they have good insight that there is a problem okay um, that is psychological in nature okay but in bdd you need to spend more time to to build uh, what we call rapport a mm. good relationship and develop a good shared understanding of um, how the problem developed possibly through some bullying when they were younger um or maybe skin problems they had at the time, um, or uh, maybe appearance was overvalued in the family. Mm -hmm. So you're really making sense of how it all started, mm -hmm. and you're trying to make sense of what keeps the problem going. So we mentioned the makeup mm -hmm. makes it difficult um, to really discover that you're safe without it. 
Um, you look at the function of uh, mirror checks. So that's part of treatment as well. So you're really looking at what is the person doing and how do those behaviors, um, while they're very understandable, um, if you really believe um, those you know, um, problems, um, are quite unhelpful because they keep you stuck. They, they prevent uh, you from finding out that you're okay without those and thereby maintaining that belief. Um, but they're also very time intensive. And I'm guessing like some other problem areas, they probably are a quite effective short-term solution. They yep. maybe make a yep. person less distressed or anxious right. in the short term, but in the long right. term they actually uh, promote or maintain the right. problem. Right, okay. absolutely. So, so, so that's a big part of treatment of ma making sense of what is going on and develop something mm. that is shared between the therapist and the, the client. Mm. And um, the, the main form of psychological treatment is CBT, uh, which is um, short uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. So that means you work with the thinking, the cognition, and you work with the behaviors. Uh, so um, the mirror checks and the mm -hmm. makeup and so on. And you look at um, um, which of those behaviors and thought patterns are helpful and which are not helpful. And you try and strengthen and, and work with those that are helpful. And usually you help the person to develop more helpful uh, effective ways of coping but really the 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 main um, sort of goal of treatment is to find out um, that the person has a problem with preoccupation and you do mm. that in CBT with a lot of uh, what we call behavioral experiments mm. um, where you deliberately change uh, those behaviors and 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 test out in the real world what is happening so if I get up in the morning and rather than spending two hours on getting ready, I, I do one hour mm. and I predict that people will comment on my appearance. You say, great, let's test that out. Let's see whether that is actually true, mm. whether the belief is accurate or not. Um, and so you support the person to cut down on those rituals and confront their fears deliberately, purposefully, mm. um, um, uh, trigger their fears and the preoccupation and then test out what would happen. Mm. Um, and, and often you would go beyond, over and above what people usually do. So I mentioned the, the, the client who had a real concern about their skin, his skin, yeah. earlier. So part of treatment um, was, of course, to look at the use of mirrors and how helpful that was. But we also tested out in an experiment what would happen if uh, we both, uh, myself as a therapist and the client, if we deliberately put on some warts using um, um, makeup uh, products and mm. wax, and we made these really ugly looking big um, warts and stuck them in our uh, faces and we went to um, the canteen on campus. Mm. And we tested out the prediction that a lot of people would comment on this. And uh, guess what we found out? I'm guessing no one commented. <laughs> exactly. People mind their own business. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's another story that um, yeah. people often don't really care. That your client was expecting that people would actually comment. Right, right. Which to me sounds like a, I, I would think that would be quite an unusual behavior for strangers to comment on someone's right. appearance. But he was really thinking, yes. people are actually going to stop me and comment on this. Or snigger or laugh or point uh -huh. at me from afar. And so what we were doing there was we were testing out that he had an excessive fear mm. about people judging him and commenting on him. Mm. Um, and so you do a lot of this work. Um, of course, you have to tailor that to the specific behaviors your client engages in. Mm. And the other sort of important line of, um, of work you do in CBT 
uh, working with someone who has great body shame mm. is that if there was trauma in the past, you would address that as well. Okay. Um, you, you would help the person process what happened at the time when they were bullied or teased. Mm. Okay. Because often the this behavioral work is, is very effective when it comes to anxiety, but not so much when it comes to shame. So we're uh -huh. using... Uh, some trauma techniques to address um, the source of the, the shame. Mm -hmm. um, and we're also using uh, a lot of compassion-focused techniques um, that are more effective when it comes to shame okay. and anxiety. And, yeah, so so that's in a, in a, in a very brief nutshell what you do in a CBT for BDD. Okay. And, and for, for more um, severe problems... Um, Often, uh, medical doctors or psychiatrists also prescribe uh, some medication that okay. can support the therapy as well. So I'm guessing that's maybe an antidepressant to lift yes. mood or maybe even some kind of anxiolytic to, to bring stress levels down. It's, yeah, so recommended would be um, the so-called SSRIs, oh, okay. uh, selective serotonin reuptake okay. inhibitors. And it's these a mouthful. Would, it is. <laughs> and these would be uh, in, the, in the more severe cases. Yeah, moderate to severe and, um, yeah, okay. that's right. Well, I can see that we're pretty much out of time. So I think okay. maybe just to finish up is to, um, if we can just tell people how they can find you if they're uh, wanting to find out more about your research okay. or your clinical work, how would they find you? Yeah, th thank you. Um, so if if they, I think if they Google Oliver NUS Psychology, mm -hmm. I think there's only one Oliver in the faculty, yeah. <laughs> they'll, they'll probably find, find my profile. Pretty quickly. So um, National University of Singapore, Oliver Swinderman. Yes. Not cinnamon. No, not. <laughs> they could try cinnamon. Yeah. See what happens. Um, yeah. So uh, that's probably the easiest way to mm. find out. Um, NUS psychology. Mm -hmm. um, Oliver Sunderman. Yeah. And obviously, people can uh, contact us through the podcast, and we can right. steer them towards you as well. Yes, you can. So we'll leave it there, and thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs>